Hi, my name is Danielle and you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On this podcast, we discuss subjects that might be creepy to some and sometimes even frightening. Some of our episodes will deal with serious subject matter, while others will be more lighthearted. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover, just an interested party, and as always, listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Danielle. I'm Polyville. And you're listening to Crime and Mystery Canada. On last week's episode, we discussed the disappearance of Christina Kaleka, who went missing from a provincial park. While I was researching her case, I came across an, another disappearance that happened in the great outdoors that also remains unsolved. So on this week's episode, we're talking about the disappearance of Jonathan Jeté and Rachel Bagnell. Jonathan and Rachel were a couple, though I'm not sure how long they'd been together. This wasn't mentioned in any of the articles that I read. They met at a climbing gym in Vancouver, British Columbia, and quickly realized that they shared a lot of things in common. They were both athletic avid outdoor adventurers, and intelligent. They were driven, and since they had a lot in common, they hit it off quickly and started seeing each other. So the first difference between uh, this case and the one that we discussed last week appears to be that these two people had some outdoor experience. They had quite a bit, actually. So Jonathan was, well, I think they both were experienced climbers. They were very athletic. They were very in shape. Rachel grew up in Vancouver, and she'd been hiking her whole life. So she was used to the outdoors. She was used to the area. And Jonathan's the same thing. He was a he was an outdoor enthusiast. He spent a lot of time in the outdoors. So they were experienced in those kinds of situations. According to MysteriesofCanada.com, in September of two thousand and ten. Jonathan was working as an attaché for the provincial government of Quebec. The 34-year-old was originally from Longueuil, Quebec, and was working in Vancouver. So I actually didn't know that there were interprovincial attachés. I thought that was just something that happened overseas. But apparently there are some within provinces. Yeah, I know there's different organizations that we deal with through my work that... Uh... For example, uh, the Francophone or, uh, organizations in uh, Alberta, for example, we sometimes work on different little projects together because my work is predominantly in French, I guess, mm-hmm. and with Quebec also. So it makes sense that the provinces would have people making either tourism plans or... Yeah, I guess so. I, I just wasn't aware of it. Rachel was a medical student and a Vancouver native, as I mentioned earlier. She was 25 years old and she was living with her sister while she was completing her medical degree. So in 2010, she'd completed her third year of medical school, but had decided that instead of going back for her fourth and final year, she was going to defer for a semester and head to South America to do volunteer work. So she was hoping to use her medical knowledge to help in communities that were in need. 
This move would mean a separation for the couple. Jonathan couldn't join her in South America because of his work. He needed to stay in Vancouver. With Rachel's departure date approaching quickly, they were trying to spend as much time as possible together. They knew that the long-distance component of their relationship would be temporary, but I think for any couple, that separation would be a challenge, even for a strong relationship. It's a challenge, and it's also a scary period of time for both people. Right, because she would probably end up being in situations that weren't always safe as well, right? You don't really know what you're getting into with that type of volunteer work. Now, despite the fact that Jonathan was still recovering from a knee injury, they decided to spend Labor Day weekend hiking in the Cayuche Mountains in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. I'm just saying it like it's spelt. They would be hiking at Valentine Lake near Pemberton, according to an article on strangeoutdoors.com. They were planning to be out in the elements for about three days. So they'd packed some food, hiking helmets, ice axes, and a book on alpine scrambling in BC. So I had to look that up. I'd never heard of alpine scrambling before. We don't exactly have mountainous terrain here in the Maritimes, so it's not really an activity we can practice here. But according to northface.com, what it is is just an extreme form of hiking, meaning that you're going to hike surfaces that will require the use of your hands but don't require the use of ropes. So you could use an axe on an icy surface. I imagine it means you might be bent over sort of pulling yourself up partially so a steep grade but not one that would require uh, you tethering to a rope. So it sounds like they're walking more in a straight line than following a trail and climbing over whatever obstacle that doesn't require being tethered. We'll get into a little bit more detail. I'm not sure they were determined to stick to a trail, though there are some trails around there. But the consensus seems to be that even if you got off the trail, there really was not much of a way to get lost because as soon as you went back down, you would find civilization pretty much no matter what. According to the northface.com article, What's required for alpine scrambling, the required equipment, is axes and helmets because you're going to be on some rocky terrain that could be pretty steep. And they packed exactly that. So it really sounds like they knew what they were getting into. This was not a surprise. This was not brand new. They were prepared for it. According to mysteriesofcanada.com, Jonathan picked Rachel up on the morning of September 4th, 2010, and they set off for their adventure. He picked her up around 7 a.m. So we know that at 7.42 in the morning, they stopped at Tim Hortons in Squamish for some hot drinks, so they got a coffee and a hot chocolate. And this was Rachel and Jonathan's last known activity. When Rachel failed to return home on Tuesday, as was planned, her sister, who she'd been living with, became worried, and the next day she raised the alarm. She informed the local authorities about her sister and Jonathan's plans and let them know that they'd failed to return. 
This concern was taken seriously by the authorities, and they swung into action pretty much immediately and started the search for Jonathan and Rachel. So even though the police get involved fairly quickly, there's still three days that have gone by since their last known uh, contact or at that Tim Hortons. So it would have been the fifth day that she called because they were supposed to be back. So they were taking an extended long weekend. So they were going to be out in the woods for about three days and back on the Tuesday and they failed to show up. So we're looking at about five days before the authorities were contacted. I do kind of understand the sister not calling right away either because it could be one of those situations where you think, well, maybe they decided to spend another day in the woods. Maybe they didn't say exactly what time they'd be coming back. So I can see waiting a little bit longer. And if you're out in the wilderness, you don't necessarily have phone service. So it's not like you can just call someone and tell them that you're going to be late. So I can see how maybe thinking, okay, I'm just going to wait a little bit not to overreact. But again, they were, because we don't know at what point Jonathan Rachel officially became missing people, it's hard to tell how long they were missing before the authorities got contacted. And it only makes sense that the sister would wait an extra day because of uh, deciding to stay another day or car problems or deciding to stop somewhere on their way and spend an extra night. So there's no, there's really no flag, red flags there. Or even like the hike out for some reason took longer and you decided to stay put for the night, not hike in the dark. Like all sorts of things can happen there. Jonathan drove a Toyota Echo, and his car was quickly discovered by the RCMP. It was approximately one kilometer up Spetch Creek Forest Service Road. The responding officers saw that there were two empty Tim Horton cups in the cup holders, but no sign of Rachel or Jonathan. Their camping gear was missing from the vehicle. They did find Jonathan's cell phone in the car, but it showed no activity after September 3rd, so the day before they set off for their trip. And at first, I thought that was a bit strange that he wouldn't have done anything on his phone after September 3rd, but this was 2010, so smartphones weren't like they are today. You wouldn't necessarily have had uh, data and internet access and all of that, so you used your phone to text and call. So if he was heading out into the woods, it's normal, I think, that the next day there were no signs of activity. I also think that uh, if there was very limited cell phone access there, um, he may have just left it purposely in the car. I know when I go fishing, I leave my cell phone in the car because I don't want to end up headfirst in the water and ruin my phone. So I, oh, I often leave it in the car. Yes, I agree. I, I think that was done on purpose, knowing that there'd be no way to reach them with a cell phone. And I mean, they're only gone three days, so I don't think it's unusual at all. Once the vehicle was located and it was very clear that Rachel and Jonathan were not there, the RCMP did not waste time. After a preliminary search didn't uncover any clues, they actually brought in, it says bloodhounds. I don't know if that's accurate. They brought in search dogs, but apparently the dogs were not able to pick up on the scent. At one point, the searchers believed that they'd found a pair of Rachel's sunglasses 
But later on, they found out that these actually belonged to another hiker who'd lost them earlier that year. So this hiker came forward and she described the glasses and explained where she lost them and those were hers. No sign of Rachel or Jonathan was ever found. Not a sign of their belongings, not an old campsite, nothing indicated that they'd even been on the trail, according to mysteriesofcanada.com. The RCMP put the call out for volunteers, and a lot of people joined the search. Over the span of 10 days, 2,000 search hours were spent looking for the couple, but they came up empty. The staff sergeant in charge of the search said that this was the first time that he knew of that they'd been unable to locate lost hikers. So this is pretty similar to what we were talking about last week with Christina's story. They said in in those articles that they locate lost people. It's very rare that people go missing in the wilderness and are not found. It's not, they don't go missing permanently. However, in this case, they would have had camping gear supplies for their three-day hike. Correct. So technically there should have been more things to find than in the case we discussed last week. Right, because Christina was just going out for a short run and had no other supplies with her. Right. And what also baffled searchers, and we did mention this a little bit earlier on, is that it was basically impossible to get lost. So you could get turned around But at one point, as they said, as soon as you head back down the mountain, no matter which direction you're going, as long as you're going down, you're going to hit civilization. So I think that would be like returning on your steps would be a lot less complicated if you know that the direction is downwards, right? So they they had this feeling for those reasons that... um, Whatever happened to Rachel and Jonathan, they weren't able to retrace their steps. Once the initial search for the couple ended, their families continued the search. They hired professional mountain guides to keep searching uh, harder to search areas like crevasses um, and searching the underbrush. But nothing was found, no trace of anything. Now, we've discussed this before in a lot of episodes, and it's impossible to search every nook and cranny in a forested area or on a mountain. Once you get into the wilderness, there's just no way to look everywhere. Um, If there's underbrush, it makes the task more difficult. But I think what baffles people the most in this case is just that nothing at all was found. I think a lot of people have in mind that if they were camping, there'd be traces of a campfire or a campsite. But that being said... Having done my fair share of backcountry hiking, most of us try to follow the, the philosophy of leave no trace. So you pack out everything you pack in. You don't leave garbage. If you light a fire, you do it on your stove or in a fire bowl. So it might not be impossible if they were really being careful with this that they actually didn't. Like there would have been no traces of a campfire anyway. But if they're carrying out what they carried in and didn't make it out, some of the, the whatever they were bringing back with them should have been found. 
I guess that depends what happened to them because if their packs are with them and they ran into an accident, like I know the crevasses were searched, but how do we know that all of them were searched? And if they had a bad fall, like their packs might be with them. Though again, I do raise the question that it's strange if they had a bad fall that both of them fell. Well, one could fall and the other one trying to help them go in. That's true, but at that point, you'd have your pack off, right? Right. So the first couple of questions that come to mind for me were, did Rachel have a phone? There's no mention of Rachel's phone at all. If she did, I think it must have been off. So if Rachel and Jonathan, or one or the other, decides that they're going to make each other disappear... It may make sense to leave the phone in the vehicle because you have no intention on coming back. The fact that the search dogs didn't pick up any scent, were they actually there or did somebody else bring their vehicle there? And that's a big question because there's a mention of people and I think the families included or at least possibly one of the families thinking that Either they never made it to the trail, never made it past the parking lot, or on their way back to the car, something happened. So instead of having succumbed to an accident, to the forces of nature, some people believe that they met with foul play, that they may have been taken or grabbed in the parking lot. I don't think there's much belief that they disappeared on purpose. They had big plans, so I don't... And, and there's no activity on cards or anything like that that's mentioned, so... I don't think there's a lot pointing in that direction, but I'm with you. I do think there is a possibility that they did meet with foul play before they even had the chance to go anywhere. So you're thinking like in the parking lot, packs on the, their backs, somebody can drive up and something can happen right then and there. Right. Over the years, there's been some tips and reports of potential clues. At one point, and I don't think this was very long after the disappearance, People reported seeing smoke, so it looked like there was a wood fire, a campfire going far, far in the woods. And they were thinking maybe they got hurt but survived and were making a fire to keep warm. So a search team went out to the area, but nothing of interest was found there. And then where they were parked is, is very close or on. I'm sorry, I didn't write that part down, but it's located very close or on a First Nations community. And a local man from the community reported while he was out that he saw some unusual bird activity in an area. So they thought maybe there were some remains there. Again, the police went out. Nothing of interest was found. Through the years, they found scraps of clothing and bones. Uh, bones turned out to be animals. Scraps of clothing didn't belong to Jonathan or Rachel. Their families have not given up hope that they would one day get answers as to what happened to the couple. One of Jonathan's brothers and his father traveled to the area yearly to hike and look for any sign of the couple. And Jonathan's mother still runs a Facebook page dedicated to trying to find her son and Rachel. Both members of the RCMP and members of the local First Nations community continue to search the area for any trace of the couple, according to mysteriesofcanada.com. 
The lead investigator on the case says that he believes there may have been a fatal slip and fall accident where they fell into some dense underbrush or into a crevice, making the recovery of any evidence difficult. But he too seems puzzled by the case and states that it's very strange that absolutely no evidence of them has been found. Jonathan's family has expressed gratitude to the local First Nations community for all the help and information that they've provided in the search, according to a WhistlerQuestion.com article from 2013. So that article came three years after the disappearance. At that point, the RCMP was still handing out flyers of the missing couple and urging hikers to keep an eye out for anything of interest or anything unusual in the area. None of the articles that I read gave any contact information about who to talk to if you know anything about their disappearance, but if you have any information about Rachel and Jonathan's disappearance, I think you can just reach out to your local RCMP detachment as they were handling the case, and they'd be able to direct you to the right people. We're going to finish up tonight with our moment of kindness. So I know I've mentioned... And some people might not want to hear any more about this, so you can stop the episode here if you want. But I know I've mentioned my cats in a few episodes. I've posted some pictures on the Facebook group. We were fostering a pair of cats. Their name were Rick and Morty. And we'd recently adopted a semi-feral cat. His name's Avery. Just a little update on Avery. Um, He's doing really well. He has decided that he had enough of his personal suite and has taken over the house Mainly, he still comes into his suite and runs the living room now. He's decided that no one else can use the couch but him. But he's getting more and more comfortable in the house, exploring other areas. I don't think he's ever going to be a lap cat, but he's come a long way since we've gotten him. But recently, we had to return Rick and Morty to their owner, and this was always the plan. We were just a temporary foster. But we realized that we had liked being a multi-cat household, So we decided we were going to adopt another rescue cat. We've welcomed Sunshine into our house. She is just six years old and a tiny thing. For my moment of kindness, I would like to give a shout out to everyone working in rescue shelters, but specifically Safe Haven Cat Rescue in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia. Their dedication and hard work, and it's all volunteer, and it was very apparent when we went to meet Sunshine Um, They really care for the cats very much and they care that they go into a good home. They're actually the organization that I mentioned, I mean, several months back about rescuing kittens from the drain pipe. So two kittens had fallen into a drain pipe and they're the organization that got things moving to get the cats out of there. And as an update on those cats, so the two kittens that were rescued, um, one's named Todd after the plumber who came out to get them out, and the other one was named Piper. Yeah. (laughs) And Todd, the plumber, actually adopted Piper. Oh, great. So the, the guy who rescued her adopted her. Um, But they've since both been adopted. So obviously they work really hard in making these cats' lives a better. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. Yeah, and that's a happy ending for those those two kittens. Yeah. And uh, good on you guys for taking in that uh, semi-feral cat, is he? Well, he's... uh, 
Sunshine? Sunshine is actually not semi-feral. She is just okay. skittish. She she okay. lived with a feral colony for years, but she um she likes people. So as far as telling people uh, or giving them a heads up that they could turn the episode off if they didn't want to hear an update on your cats, um, you can judge a person's character by how they treat animals and how they treat uh, an animal, especially when there's nothing really in it for them through volunteering or adopting. So right. it's uh, good, good for you guys. I don't know. You go to those. I was actually really worried because I've never been inside an actual rescue. Like I've adopted rescue cats, but we've just picked them up. So for Sunshine, they they asked if we wanted to meet her and we said yes. And we had to go inside the rescue where we knew there would be other cats. And I felt like it would be this like very sad um, atmosphere. And I was a bit worried that we'd come home with several cats because of that. But they actually had a really nice setup. Each cat has their own room. It's not even a cage. It's like a very large room. And there were a few just wandering the main area and playing around. And the volunteer that was there, they obviously loved her. They were jumping on her and like nipping at her hair. And she knew them all by name and like all their backstory. So it, it wasn't, I don't know what I had in mind. I think I had those sad commercials that you see for rescues when they're trying to get you to donate, which I know is the case for some places. But like this place obviously was uh, was not what I expected and we only came home with the one cat, but we might return for another at some point. <laughs> you know where they're located now. We know where they're located. And if anyone in the Nova Scotia area is looking to adopt a rescue, I know the rescue is local to Halifax. The cats are being adopted very, very quickly and some people are having a hard time adopting, but they do have several cats there that have been waiting for a while for their forever home so they're on facebook they're called safe haven um, so you can check them out so uh, just to add to that uh, during these difficult times with the pandemic and people being quarantined or or made to stay at home and not able to travel i think we've come to realize that uh, all service animals do not necessarily wear a vest or have some sort of official ID as a service animal. So anybody that's got a pet, that's their service animal in a sense. Yeah. Right. And since you're updating on cats, I'll just give a quick, quick update on Sandy uh, that I had captured mm -hmm. out of the yard last winter. Also, she was also abandoned by her owners when they left. Right. And one, the son of one of our top listeners, I guess, um, <laughs> is the um the kid or, or that took in the cat and has been taking care of him along with two other cats so i know that uh, owen won't be listening to the whole episode mm -hmm. but i think we should just send a shout out to owen mm -hmm. uh, for the good job that uh, that he did with 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 sandy and the other cats and uh, has, has sent me pictures and shown me videos of how Sandy was doing and his family referred to him as the cat whisperer because he has a way with cats. So good for you, Owen. And it's a kind young man with a good heart. Yeah. Good job, Owen. We can probably post some pictures on the Facebook group of the cats for the people who sure. are still listening to the episode at this point. So thanks to everyone who's been listening and who's still listening. I hope you stay safe out there and have a good night. Good night, everybody. Good night.